Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. My name is Ryan Graves. I'm a former lieutenant and F-18 pilot in the U.S. Navy. In 2015, Ryan Graves was in the briefing room when his fellow pilots on the USS Theodore Roosevelt came in to talk about what they'd seen in the air. One of my very good friends from my squadron, they noticed that there were uh, a number of radar contacts that were east of the aircraft carrier, and they went to go check out these objects. And then they got closer and started breaking out on the FLIR. That's when we start to hear some of the communication on the, the tapes that were released about how they don't know what the object is how they're looking at the situational awareness page and seeing a whole fleet of these objects. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, thank you. The situational awareness page is a God's eye view with the aircraft itself in the center. On that screen, you see the, the gimbal video. And you also see the radar information on the situational awareness page that sh shows the formation of other objects uh, that were in the vicinity of the gimbal that were flying in what appeared to me as a wedge formation. Uh, a wedge formation that uh, executed a turn, uh, a 180 degree turn, and the gimbal object uh, essentially stopped and followed that formation. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not. It is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's a thing, it's rotating. This wasn't the first time Graves had heard about pilots seeing things they could not explain. It had happened to him, too. Back in 2014, he was stationed just off Virginia Beach. The aircraft he was flying had been updated with new and improved radar systems. But as we started flying with these new radars, we started noticing objects on our radar that we weren't seeing with the older ones. Objects in our airspace around us, not that far away. And they were performing in strange ways. Um, they weren't flipping in and out. They were either stationary or they were moving at pretty high speeds and in predictable patterns. And that was our first indication that there was something not right with our airspace. Navy protocol demanded a meticulous examination, starting with the most obvious question. Was there a problem with the new radar? Well, the Navy dismissed that theory after other sensors on the aircraft, such as visual and infrared sensors, also picked up the strange objects. So next up, Graves and his fellow pilots tried to verify the objects directly with their own eyes. I recall doing that myself. Uh, we would try to slow down as much as possible, pick an object that was stationary, uh, get below it so that we could look up against the blue sky to try to identify it. We'd have it locked on our radar. Uh, our IR systems, uh, our camera systems, uh, even our missile systems would begin to lock onto these objects to indicate that they were seeing them. And all those indications are being projected onto my helmet visor, almost as a heads-up display. And so as I approach that merge, something we practice all the time uh, at much more challenging parameters, I'd be looking for it and all my sensors in my visor would be telling me where to look. We would fly by and we weren't able to see them. There's nothing there not normal. I was 100% expecting to see something when we came up to it. I mean, all my training and all my tools and all my sensors up to that point have worked one way. Never have I had that much information about something and then were somehow mysteriously unable to see it. Sure, I might have missed it, 
Um, but to think that I would miss it multiple times and my back seizure would also miss it comes to a conclusion that it's not, you know, likely pilot error that we can't gain a, a visual of this object. Something else had to be going on. And that was not exciting. That was very unsettling because I just put myself into a position where I thought I was going to have the confidence to maintain a safe distance from this object. And I would even have the ability to see it. So, you know, I just, I just kind of called into question my ability to further examine this object. Uh, and that was terrifying because now we didn't you know. Now it's like I can't even trust my eyeballs. Ryan Graves was in the Navy for more than 10 years. He's since left the service. This summer, he testified before the House Subcommittee on National Security, the Border and Foreign Affairs. And he told the representatives that as a pilot and a formally trained engineer, he'd witnessed many phenomena that he could not explain. During a training mission in Warning Area Whiskey 72, 10 miles off the coast of Virginia Beach, two F-18 Super Hornets were split by a UAP. The object, described as a dark gray or a black cube inside of a clear sphere, came within 50 feet of the lead aircraft and was estimated to be 5 to 15 feet in diameter. The mission commander terminated the flight immediately and returned to base. Our squadron submitted a safety report, but there was no official acknowledgement of the incident and no further mechanism to report the sightings. Soon, these encounters became so frequent that aircrew would discuss the risk of UAP as part of their regular pre-flight briefs. Graves now runs an organization called Americans for Safe Aerospace. It's a nonprofit dedicated to understanding unidentified anomalous phenomena as, national, as a national security threat. He says he still doesn't know what he saw in the skies. Part of the reason for that is that any unidentified aerial phenomenon, as the government now calls them, is automatically highly classified. But he says, whatever they are, they must be taken seriously. We have to accept that we don't know what these objects are. And that's a big step to do that. And we have to stay in that area of uncertainty because once we start jumping to conclusions such as, you know, what our media has trained us to think about UFOs and aliens for the past 40 years or so, or for the people that are hardcore on the other side of it that say that it's all a joke. Um, we have to realize that there might be a middle ground there and we have to be comfortable with that uncertainty. UFOs have long been both a major sci-fi mainstay and a potent conspiracy theory, all of which make the fact that the U.S. government has recently declassified a few pilot videos and held hearings about them that much more interesting. To me, the question isn't so much, are aliens visiting Earth or are they buzzing aircraft carriers? The question is, what has changed to promote a burst of public conversation about UFOs from a normally super secretive Department of Defense? Well, Garrett Graff is a journalist, historian, and author who covers the intersection of politics, technology, and national security. He's published a new book just out today, and it's called UFO, The Inside Story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. Garrett Graff, welcome back to On Point. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, let's talk a little bit more about Ryan Graves, because in our pre-show conversations with you, you said you found him to be the most credible of the witnesses who recently testified uh, before that House subcommittee. Why is that? So I think uh, he represents a couple of different things that we see uh, across the history of, uh, you know, what were originally called UFO sightings, now called UAP sightings. Um, it, you know, he he is a trained uh, observer. Um, he is an experienced pilot. He has a good sense of what is up there in the sky and what should be up there in the sky. And then there's also documentary evidence 
that backs up his encounters and his experiences. Um, you know, there's video, there's testimony from corroborating witnesses. Um, and then to me, there's sort of another category that's a little bit more amorphous, but that to me represent the most believable witnesses of encounters, you know, going back across the sort of 80 years or so of the modern mm -hmm. uh, UFO age, which are, uh, you know, he has very little to gain and, in fact, quite a lot to lose by coming forward and talking about his encounters with um, an unknown object. Um, you know, there are very few instances in life, um, and, you know, this is obviously a part of the theme of today's conversation and what you're interested in, um, but, you know, there is a stigma of talking about UFOs. Um, you know, part of the reason that the U.S. government has rebranded it as UAPs, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, is to reduce the so-called giggle factor of someone coming forward to talk about UFOs. Now, the irony is that the way that this whole modern era started was with flying saucer sightings. Mm -hmm. And it was, in fact, actually the U.S. government's early studies of flying saucers in the years after World War II, the dawn of the Cold War, when they first rebranded and popularized the term UFOs, unidentified flying objects, as a way to decrease and destigmatize the giggle factor of talking about flying saucers. And now... You know, fast forward through a couple of decades and a lot of pop culture, and the government is out with a fresh rebranding. Well, I want to actually just play another uh, clip from um, just before the hearings uh, that were held in that House subcommittee this summer. They were they were called uh, uh, together by House Representative Tim Burchett, and here's something that he said in a press conference right before the hearings. They do exist or they don't exist. They keep telling us they don't exist, but they block every opportunity for us to get a hold of the information to prove that they do exist. And we're going to get to the bottom of it, dadgummit, whatever the truth may be. We're done with the cover-up. So, Garrett, I wanted to play that because it's not just, you know, what does the uh, the public believe, how much trust they have uh, in government or, or lacking. But here we have a, a representative himself whether you believe him or not, who's saying, well, we can't even get our information from uh, from other parts of the government on this. I mean, what do you make of that? So, it, I mean, that's a real problem. I mean, one of the big challenges of studying and uh, trying to solve this mystery across the last 80 years has been stonewalling by the government. Um, it, it, you know, to me, there you know, I've spent a couple of years now studying this, going back over the history, reading through declassified documents, interviewing government officials. And there is absolutely a government cover-up about its understanding and knowledge around UFOs and UAPs. Um, there are a couple of legitimate reasons for some of that cloak of secrecy. Mm -hmm. um, some chunk of, uh, you know, what we consider UAP uh, sightings are our government's own secret military development uh, projects and operations. Right. Um, 
the CIA uh, went back and calculated at, at one point that actually it believes that about half of all UFO sightings in the 1950s were the U-2 spy plane. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, Garrett, I'm going to talk with you a lot more uh, about maybe the government's reasons for not sharing more of uh, what it knows about UAP sightings. But the history of all this is equally interesting, and we'll talk about that when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Garrett Graff joins us today. He's a journalist, historian, an author who covers politics, technology, and national security, and he has a brand new book out today called UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there. And Garrett, I just want to sort of come clean with my own uh deep interest in this subject, because as uh, regular listeners know, I'm very passionate about science fiction, absolutely uh, love it. So there's sort of an ingrained uh, interest there. I dedicated a good chunk of the 90s to watching Uh, (laughs) X-Files. But, uh, you know, in addition, I have to say the universe is so vast, I have no doubt at all whatsoever that out there somewhere or many somewheres, there are other forms of life. I mean, that's just like kind of a scientific plausibility easily explained to me. But whether or not we have been visited by other you know, sort of distant civilizations is a completely different story, and I tend to doubt it for a lot of reasons. But I just wanted to just hear from you a little bit about that, because there is a, there is a completely legitimate aspect to thinking about life on other planets. NASA dedicates quite a bit of its research dollars to pursuing that very question. Um, not as much as they should, but <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay. Um, uh, to me, one of the things I really tried to do with this book was to weave together these twin threads over the last 80 years. You know, the the military's hunt for UFOs here and the expanding and evolving astronomy and scientific search for extraterrestrial intelligence out there. Um, they are normally stories that journalists and historians tell sort of totally differently, you know, that there, there are these kooky UFO people here, and then there are the serious scientists who are doing serious science work out in space. And to me, they're actually very related conversations because it is this sort of public fascination with this topic. You know, the, this question of are we alone 
is probably one of the two or three most fundamental questions of human existence. I, I mean, it, it it is up there with questions like, you know, what happens after death? And, mm-hmm. you know, is there a God? And th- it ends up being a very spiritual story, a very spiritual um, question in many ways. I- and by the way, those three questions don't necessarily all seem totally unrelated. You know, is there a God? Are we alone? And what happens after death? I mean, that the, that's sort of all wrapped up in the sort of same cloak of spirituality and belief systems. And I can tell you, though, to, of those three major questions you asked, I only have a definitive answer to one of them, which is, yes. are we alone? Absolutely not. The universe yes. is just too vast. It would be such a waste of space otherwise. But Yes. And that, to me, is actually one of the big, you know, it is actually one of the most fundamental revolutions in human knowledge that we have had in the last 20 years is the the true understanding of the size and scale and scope of the universe. You know, as late as the 1990s, we did not know that there were any so-called exoplanets. Mm -hmm. You know, that there were not any... We didn't know that there were any planets beyond our own solar system. We now believe that there are uh, effectively planets around every star in the universe. And that when when you even narrow down to just habitable planets, sort of planets that exist in the, like, temperature bands that we believe that life would need to exist. Yeah, the Goldilocks you, zone. Yeah, mm-hmm. you are uh, – the, the sort of current estimate is somewhere around one sextillion planets. Wow. That's a billion trillion habitable planets across the universe. So, sure, life could be rare, intelligent life could be rare, but do you really think it's a one in sextillion chance? I don't. No. <laughs> and I, I I think that actually the math is very much on the side of aliens and that part of the challenge for us is how we misunderstand what that means for sort of the what I would you know what I refer to as sort of the first contact challenge you know sort of what we would expect to first encounter with aliens mm-hmm. and I just want to say that I if first contact ever happens I do absolutely want it to be the Star Trek version with Vulcans right. uh, I mean I'm not joking because I think that yeah. would be fantastic because I, I mean that this gets us to the the more sort of the darker conspiracy side of things with uh, with UFOs or UAPs or, or what have you. And that is um, answering the question of are we alone carries with it a great deal of fear. Because if we're not alone and if, you know, UFOs or, or uh, extraterrestrial life has visited or will eventually visit Earth, there's the great danger of that it would be harmful to us, right? And I think that's what – is that part of what propels people to um, – uh, to amplify their doubt when the government doesn't uh, say more about the information that it has or doesn't have? Yes, uh, absolutely. What's interesting, though, is we're, we probably think about this entirely wrong, mm. that, you know, Hollywood has sort of given us these, like, two versions of the first contact scenario. You know, there's the Jodie Foster contact, you know, the the sort of message from outer space version. Right. Then there's the, um, you know, 
Independence Day, take me to your leader, alien mothership over the White House, you know, sort of here to con- conquer us or, you know, harvest our organs for food or, you know, like do whatever. The, the most likely scenario as you begin to get into this is that if there are aliens and advanced civilizations out there, they're not only too far away to care for us to know, we are too insignificant for them to notice or care about. Mm -hmm. That we are actually an incredibly young civilization. We exist on a pretty ordinary planet around a pretty ordinary star. And the chances that anyone would have noticed our existence is incredibly small. Um, Carl Sagan, the sort of famous astronomer of the 20th century, um, he was one of the biggest proponents of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence out there. Um, he's a major character in the book. Um, but he was you know, probably one of the premier skeptics of UFOs being alien visitors here. Mm-hmm. But his argument was statistically – Aliens probably visit Earth every couple hundred thousand years, not because they actually care about Earth, but because they sort of are, you know, treating us like a way station on the Jersey Turnpike, you know, sort of stopping by on their way from one place of interest to another. And so his argument uh, sort of counterintuitively was that aliens visit Earth, sure, but the chances that sort of last Tuesday them buzzing the USS Theodore Roosevelt uh, happens to be the one day in the last 200,000 years that they stop by seems pretty unlikely. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you my theory of uh, when we might confirm a first contact, because we've been focusing on uh, advanced extraterrestrial civilizations. I think our first contact is definitely going to be on the microbial level, right? Because either as we go and explore other planets or we will eventually find, you know, some kind of... uh, meteor or asteroidal remnant on Earth that contains evidence of a, of a microbe that isn't, you know, uh, terrestrial. The, the, smaller is what I think is going to actually happen. But, but Garrett, before we get into, we spend too much of the show um, theorizing on uh, what first contact might look like. I want to get back to talking about this history that you lay out in the mm-hmm. book and why, again, that that combination of accepting the unknown or not accepting it, conspiracy theories, uh, and this overall view of our place in the universe, why they come together. And, you know, you have written... It's, it's particularly interesting to me that you wrote a book about UFOs because you've also written another book called Watergate, A New History. You got a uh, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize on that. And The Only Plane in the Sky was an oral history of 9-11. Now, both of those major events in U.S. history have along with them a very strong vein or, or, or numerous group of people uh, who believe in the in conspiracies around those events. And in the case of Watergate, I mean, there was actually a conspiracy, right, with, yes. the, with the Nixon administration. Yep. So can you talk to me a little bit about this? What was it about um, UFOs that sort of um, matched the kinds of research in history that you'd, uh, you'd done before? Yeah. It, um, I did not ever expect that I would start out or that I would end up writing a book about UFOs. I am not what uh, people in the field call a ufologist, Um, sort of someone who 
professionally or semi-professionally studies this. I am a national security writer. I've covered uh, national security in Washington for 20 years around the intelligence community, federal law enforcement, cybersecurity, counterterrorism. Um, and there, one of the things you mentioned as you introduced the show was how this conversation around UFOs and UAPs has changed in government circles over the last um, really seven years. Um, in 2017, there was this blockbuster series of reporting by the New York Times mm-hmm. and with follow-up by Politico um, around uh, a, a, pen, a secret Pentagon program that studied UAPs and uh, and actually paranormal phenomenon as well that Harry Reid, then senator, had sort of backed and funded um, with... Uh, a Las Vegas uh, businessman named Robert Bigelow. That is one of my favorite parts of your book, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it, it's it's an incredibly weird story, um, you know, because it also ends up featuring in a big way the Blink-182 frontman Tom DeLonge, um, it, you know, this sort of skinwalker ranch out, um, out west where they sort of see, the, they believe that they see a lot of paranormal activity, sort of et cetera, et cetera. It's a very bizarre story. But... Those stories in 2017 restarted this conversation, and you began to see serious people talking seriously about this. And for me, there was one very specific moment that stood out, which was in December 2020, John Brennan, who at that point had just wrapped up the better part of a decade as President Obama's CIA director and White House Homeland Security Advisor. He was a career intelligence officer, had risen through the ranks of the CIA, eventually ended up as director. And he gave an interview to a Washington journalist and economist named Tyler Cowen, where he said sort of effectively, there's some stuff flying around up there. We don't know what it is. It puzzles us. And I think it may end up being some new form of life. Well, um, it's actually, not a direct quote; it's a paraphrase. Garrett, but... oh, I have that. We actually have that oh, moment perfect. from when uh, Brennan said that. So this is uh, former CIA director John Brennan in 2020. I think some of the phenomena we might be seeing uh, uh, is, continues to be um, unexplained, and um, might in fact be some type of phenomenon that is the result of something that um, we don't yet understand and that could involve some type of um, activity that uh, some might uh, say uh, constitutes a, a, a different form of life. So, Gary, I suppose it wasn't just that the CIA director was saying, oh, well, there's stuff that we don't know, don't fully understand. It was that he went as far as to say it might constitute a different form of life that caught your attention. It, yes. And that there just aren't that many things that probably puzzle John Brennan. You know, he had spent a decade at the top of the intelligence uh, community in the United States. You know, when John Brennan woke up in the morning, if he had a question, you know, there were tens of thousands of analysts and officers and signal intelligence intercept networks and sensor systems and surveillance networks and satellites that would try to answer his question. And so if he's leaving that decade at the top ranks of the uh, of the administration and he's sort of still like, this is some weird stuff and we don't know what it is, um, that felt to me like something worth diving into. Um, and it begins to get into, you know, it is this incredibly interesting history because, you know, it's pop culture. 
It's, you know, advances in military technology. It's the space race. It's the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's sort of this advancing science because what you end up with is this sort of incredible new sense of, um, to me, uh, sort of humility about how little we actually understand about our world around us. Because, mm. um, you know, the, and, and we've sort of touched on this a little bit in our conversation already today. UFOs are real. UAPs are real. There is something there we don't know what it is. There are incredibly meaningful and interesting and insightful and world-changing answers that that mystery could be even if it never turns out to be aliens. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the, the sort of quest for understanding here and why I think it's so important that we dedicate resources as a government and society to solving this mystery is I think it's going to fundamentally change the way that we understand the world. So can I just um, jump in here for a second on that? I, I, I completely agree with you because I think anything that we can't explain initially and eventually find a way, you know, through science and observation to to explain it is, even if it's a small discovery, is fundamentally world-changing. But there's a difference between UFOs and, say, the ongoing necessary exploration of the deep oceans of the planet, right? Um, I don't think the government very frequently, in terms of uh, research that it funds for uh, deep ocean exploration, that it just automatically classifies it. So beyond beyond the they could be our own, uh, you know, experimental uh, uh, vehicles in the atmosphere or you know the uh, the government doesn't want us to want people to know about potential national security threats beyond those two reasons which are not insignificant what is it about UFO, UAPs I'll use the government's language here that uh, automatically puts them in such a highly secretive and classified area of observation so here we get to what i think is the actual government cover up around UAPs which is, you know, as we started to talk about, you know, there are two layers uh, of the cloaks of secrecy that are sort of obvious and that we understand. You know, one is some chunk of this is our own government's secret programs and developments. Some chunk of this is also adversary technology being tested against us. Mm-hmm. And the government is sort of squirrely about saying what what its sensors and radars and systems pick up and detect. We know, though, that some chunk of this is adversary technology because one of the things that the government has actually said as it has sort of reopened UAP investigations since uh, 2017 and in the last couple of years is that one of the government's discoveries has been a heretofore unknown trans-medium Chinese drone, which is to say a government uh, drone from China that comes up out of the water and opens uh, into flight. To me, though, the core of the cover-up, the government doesn't actually know what this is. Mm. John Brennan is right. Well, Garrett Graff, hang on for just a moment. Much more to discuss about UFOs, UAPs, and what we, as everyday Americans, think about them. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, 
a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before we return to today's conversation, I wanted to let you know about something we're working on for Friday. We're going to be talking about the true diversity within the Asian American academic experience. Of course, uh, that question uh, came under great scrutiny in the Supreme Court recently with the overturning of affirmative action. But there's much more to the story than that. So we want to know, if you're Asian American, how would you describe your relationship with academics and studying while growing up? What kind of expectations did your family have of you? Or what kind of expectations did you have for yourself? Were you the first person in your family to go to college? So we also want to hear from Asian American parents as well, uh, because, of course, there are many stereotypes about about Asian American parents. Tell us your story about uh, academics and you and your children. You can do so via the On Point Vox Pop app. Just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop or call us at 617-353-0683. That's for later this week. Garrett Graff is my guest today. His new book is UFO, the inside story of the government's search for alien life here and out there. And Garrett, I wanted to just play perhaps one of the most famous moments of uh, alien sightings in modern history. It happened on the evening of October 30th, 1938, when Americans were listening to uh, evening radio shows and the programs were interrupted by this. What's that? There's a jet of flames springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods, the barns, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. Of course, that is The War of the Worlds. It's Orson Welles' 1938 adaptation of the great H.G. Wells novel that was so realistic for its time that it put a lot of America into an actual panic. Now, Garrett, the reason why I wanted to uh, play that moment is not only do you start your book with it, but I think it really it really underscores one of the important threads throughout each of the sort of UFO ages that you go through in your history here. And that is... 
I think the interest or or fear around extraterrestrial life waxes and wanes depending on the current state of technology, right? Because you know, Orson Welles had access to the radio. Many people relied on the radio for for all their information in you know in the 30s. Then we get to the age of uh, more sophisticated military flight. Then we get to the age of the Cold War, right? And Sputnik and all that. And of course, now in more modern times, just leaps and bounds of uh, advances in science uh, regarding just what we can observe from satellites and the search for um, life out there. How important is that to understand and the the fact that the government's both been pushing some of these advances and then ironically suffers the consequence of them? Yes. These stories of sort of the, the government's focus, the military's focus, and pop culture are inextricably linked across the last 80 years. Um, And and you see these cycles of sort of, uh, you know, sightings driving popular culture, popular culture driving sightings, the sightings driving government attention, the, you know, the the government getting frustrated. um, Because again, sort of going back to what we were talking about just before the break, I think really the truth is the government doesn't know what these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's an incredibly uncomfortable place for the bureaucracy to be over the last 80 years. Um, you know, the, the modern flying saucer age really begins in 1947 with an Idaho businessman flying over the Pacific Northwest who reports that he sees nine saucer-shaped objects flying at tremendous speeds. That's really where flying saucers, the imagery of flying saucers, is born. That launches this incredible summer of UFO sightings across the country. There are sightings of flying saucers reported in more than 34 states. The the crash at Roswell is one of that summer's sort of uh, now main events in, in history. Roswell wasn't actually that big at the time for uh, reasons that uh, I sort of go into and uh, talk about in the book. Um, but uh, what you see is the government really sort of scrambling over the course of 1947 to figure out what these things are. Mm. This is the dawn of the Cold War. Um, it, 47 is this incredibly important moment in the history of uh, our government and geopolitics and national security. The The Air Force is actually being created as a standalone military service. The Joint Chiefs of Staff is created. The National Security Council, the CIA, is created as the first peacetime intelligence agency. And the Air Force is confronting really its first big crisis, which is these flying saucers that no one knows what they are. And the FBI gets involved. The The Air Force is dispatching intelligence officers all over the country to fi- figure out what these things are. The, the military doesn't initially worry that these are aliens. I mean, the, the idea that UFOs are aliens sort of comes a little bit later in uh, in the public imagination. What the Air Force is worried about in that summer is that these are secret Soviet craft being built by kidnapped Nazi rocket scientists. Mm. Because what is the U.S. government doing that summer? It has brought Nazi rocket scientists right. to the uh, you know New Mexico desert to build its own rockets. You know, this is the dawn of the space race. And what it is terrified about is that there are these things flying all over the United States, dawn of the nuclear age, dawn of the Cold War, and that maybe these are Soviet craft that could attack us that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we have similar examples uh, with every sort of rise in UFO fervor, I would say. I would say. But they also draw this very, very interesting, um, what, what should I call it, thread uh, through the book. And, and that is, and has particularly, or specifically has to do with um, the power of conspiracy theories and yes. how UFOs really... Um, kind of proved that in in the United States, in American culture and American politics. And you, in fact, you've you've said that you can draw a line from early UFO conspiracy theories all the way to January 6, 2021, when the mob attacked Congress. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier that I, my last book was a history of Watergate. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was surprising to me getting into this research was how closely those two books end up being related. Um, Because really the second half of the UFO story in uh, American history is the story of the collapse of truth and trust in government institutions post-Watergate. That, you know, the Pentagon Papers, the Vietnam War, Watergate, the Church Committee, sort of all of these revelations in the 1970s are what lay the groundwork for the sort of dark UFO conspiracies that begin to gin up in the late 70s and early 80s, including Roswell. That yeah. That's actually the moment that Roswell emerges into the public consciousness uh, amid this conspiracy that the government recovered spacecraft and recovered uh, even potentially alien bodies at Roswell in that summer of 47. And that really, in some ways, the idea of the deep state is born in these dark UFO conspiracies in, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you see some of the major figures, um, including one in particular, Bill Cooper, who are sort of the founding members of the UFO conspiracies in the 80s, then become some of the founding voices of the far-right fringe and conservative talk radio in the 90s. And Bill Cooper actually is the inspiration for a local public access talk show host in Austin, Texas, named Alex Jones. Mm. Mm. And the two of them sort of end up in this, you know, sort of small stakes feud in the latter part of the 1990s as Alex Jones sort of drifts into ever more conspiratorial territory. Bill Cooper is sort of trying to hold on to what he sees as the truth because he believes he is someone who actually is actually telling the truth, even about these dark UFO conspiracies and cover-ups, whereas he thinks that Alex Jones is just making stuff up. The two of them have a real falling out around 9-11 as Alex Jones, uh, you know, drifts into what we now call 9-11 trutherism. And then actually Bill Cooper, you know, has sort of gone far enough down that far right fringe that he's become, you know, a, a tax protester, sort of anti-government protester. Um, and he dies in a police shootout um, in the uh, in December of 20, uh, 2001. Uh, when police come to arrest him and he opens fire on sheriff's deputies uh, and shoots one of them and they return fire and, and kill him. And that it really is in ways that I think most Americans don't realize, uh, you know, where sort of conspiracies were born in our political culture in UFO land. Yeah. Okay. So what I think is so important about this idea that 
that you introduce about the connection between the two is that uh, they both deeply have to do with mistrust of government, but also a very, 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 as you said, fervent belief in uh, the conspiracy's version of truth. Yes. And I'm going to elaborate that on that in a second, but I just want to play a moment from an episode of 60 Minutes in Australia because you'll hear that sincere belief in the voices of two people who talk about their experiences or what they believe to be their experiences with aliens visiting them. I can remember as far back as six years old, you know, being in my room, being, you know, just going to bed and then aware that there were six light shafts coming down through the ceiling and would stand around my bed and start turning into a human-like looking form. They do seem to be able to, to uh, uh, walk through walls and, and materialize. I thought for a while they were ghosts when I was younger, but uh, these, these beings materialize into a physical form, so it's hard to say they might be uh, from another dimension, so to speak, or, or, or anything like that. So, Garrett, here's the connection I see. In fact, to me, it's more plausible that one day some of these f- folks who uh, say they've been visited by aliens might be uh, presented with evidence to the contrary, and maybe they'll they'll change their minds. But, of course, the people who rioted in Congress on January 6th, no amount of evidence, no amount of evidence, court cases, the testimony of state of elections officials, etc., would change their minds about the uncertainty created by Donald Trump's constant lying about the election. And the power of conspiracy theories is that it it eliminates uncertainty in favor of a particular type of certainty, right? And so, you know, whether or not that new version of cer- that new certainty is true or not, so that makes it very it makes conspiracy theories very uh, resistant resistant to uh, to collapse. So if the government is trying to, you know, say, hey, there's there's stuff about uh, UAPs that we just don't know, I mean, it's not going to change very many people's minds, is it? No, and I think it, uh, one of the shames of it is it makes it harder to have real conversations about this subject, yeah. which is, you know, the the way that UFO conspiracies have captured so much of the public imagination around this subject um, makes it harder for government officials to try to have serious public conversations about this without being laughed at. Um, and, and this comes back to sort of one of the things that, uh, you know, we've we've touched on uh, over this hour, which is I think that there are, there's something real here that may not be aliens, but is still worth figuring out. Mm. And that what, you know, what are UAPs? What are what are UFOs? I think it's going to end up being science that we don't yet understand, that it's going to be, um, you know, meteorological, astronomical and atmospheric science that we don't yet understand. And then I think there's actually going to be an incredibly weird category, one that we are totally unprepared for as a, a society that is the physics that we don't understand yet. Right. Um, we need to be humble about how little of the world we actually understand, that almost everything that we have learned about modern physics we have learned in the last hundred years. Um, the Harvard astronomy chair Avi Loeb points out that in January, the world's oldest woman died. She was a French nun. She was 118 years old. Mm-hmm. In her lifetime, everything that we have learned as humans 
about relativity and quantum physics we learned in her single lifetime. Imagine what we will learn about physics in the next 100 years, the next 500 years, the next 10,000 years if our civilization lasts that long. Um, And to me, um, you know, going back then to those alien abduction stories, uh, you know, I I don't know enough about the underlying science, um, but, you know, it's possible that there are, you know, parallel dimensions that we're going to be discovering, that there's going to be time travel that uh, we come to understand is possible. And that when you talk to people who have, uh, um, who report being abducted by aliens, um, the, the people who have sort of dedicated their lives to studying them, they, re- they sort of report and show up as true victims of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of something has happened to them and we don't yet understand what it is. That doesn't mean that I'm saying here that I think that they were abducted by aliens. But they had but some kind of th- trauma for sure. Yeah. That they had some type of experience that we do not yet understand. Yeah. And we need to be humble, I think, in this search for understanding about what UFOs and UAPs actually are going to turn out to be. Yeah. And I mean, with that, the, one of the major thoughts I came away with with in reading your book is that even though we're talking about alien life and what might be out there, this is really a story about humanity, right? And on the one yes. hand, we are compelled to want to know what's out there, while it's simultaneously feeling much more vulnerable and small and insignificant the more that we learn. And sometimes people try to protect against that vulnerability. So, Garrett, I just adored the book. It's called UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government search for alien life here and out there. And I thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks so much for a great conversation. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. On Point.